All right, Genesis 37, verse 12. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said unto him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'll ask him for his blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this time we can look into your word and we pray that you would open up our eyes to its truths, that our hearts might be changed, that our minds might be transformed to that of your only begotten Son. I pray that we would, Father, learn and do and not just uh, understand in knowledge, but understand in our hearts and receive this word in our hearts this morning. We thank you once again for your precious word, which we trust fully with our lives and with our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, what's in a name? Yeah, um, well, to the Jews, there's a lot in a name. I mean, most of, most of you have names that mean something, okay? They have some sort of meaning behind it. So who knows what the meaning of their name is? Well, there's a few of you. Okay, well, I won't ask you. Don't worry. I won't ask you what it is. Um, so my name, apparently, Frank, if you haven't met me before, um, means a Frenchman. Um, so I suppose you don't, I don't mind you calling me Francois, um, but I'm not really a Frenchman. But there are names with specific meanings, and to Jews, those names often reflected even the character of the person. They, what name they carried often actually told a bit about that person and what they were actually like. And so to the Jew, the name meant a lot of things. Did you notice in this particular passage that it doesn't call Jacob, Jacob, it calls him now Israel? Okay, well, that's where we get the name of the nation, Israel, from this. That's because back in chapter 32, God gave Jacob a new name, which God loves to do, apparently. He loves to give people new names. And if you remember, he changed Abram's name to Abraham. So God put his own name within Abraham's name. He changed Sarai's name to Sarah. And he put a H in that name as well, because once again, he wanted it reflective of his name of Jehovah. Jesus' name renamed Simon to Cephas or Peter. And God renamed Saul Paul. There's a few more examples in the Bible about that. And so Jacob's original name, if you know what that means, it essentially means supplanter or heel catcher. Because if you remember the way they were born, they were twins, and Esau was born first. And, but Jacob grabbed onto Esau's heel. And so his name essentially meant heel grabber or supplanter, someone who's trying to get ahead of the other person. The poor kid grew up his whole life with that sort of name. But now God had changed his name and he wanted him not to be known simply as heel grabber or supplanter. He wanted his name to mean 
the one who wrestles with God. And you might think, wow, that's a that's a funny name to call someone. Someone who wrestles with God, isn't that like a, doesn't that have like a negative connotation to it? Who wants to wrestle with God? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 32 with me, verse 24, there is a story about Jacob before he was about to meet his brother Esau, and he was afraid of his brother Esau. He was afraid his brother was going to kill him. Okay. And so he had a, a tremendous amount of fear. And by the grace of God, um, he met Jacob and he wrestled with him. And so this is the story of that. And it says there in Genesis 32, 24, it says, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Now, that's a, isn't that a lovely thought? So God said, I'm not gonna, you're not going to be called Jacob anymore. You're going to be called a prince because you've wrestled with God and you haven't lost. And that encounter with God, and which is a beautiful thing when you think about it, um, gave Jacob confidence. If you can wrestle with God and come out of that one alive, then you can face the biggest of monsters in this world. And so, did you know that one day God's going to, the Lord Jesus is actually going to give us all new names? You didn't, did you? Jesus is going to give each of us a new name. And that name is going to be reflective of our relationship to God. You see, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to maintain or keep the name Frank in heaven. Okay? Um, maybe I will. But God's going to give each of us a new name. And that name is going to be reflective of the relationship we have with him. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2 with me. Look at verse 17. Revelation 2.17. This is Jesus speaking and he says, He that hath ear, hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. So you're going to have this special name God's going to give you that's going to mean something absolutely awesome. And it's going to be related to him. You see, just as if you... Realize the name Israel, the, the word Al at the end of this particular name means God. Okay, so Al in the Bible is the word for God. Okay, Jehovah is his name, but the word for God is Al. Okay, so this is where we get wrestles with God. Israel is wrestler with God. But you'll notice that also many people and prophets in the Old Testament have Al in their name. Okay, Ezekiel, Daniel, 
There's a number of them that have that Al in their name, which means they're related somehow to God. There's some aspect of that name that refers to God. So, actually, the, the, and I've shared this in the past with you before, but the name Elijah is such a unique name because it contains the word Al, which is God, El, Elijah, which is the name for God. And Elijah, imagine having a name and growing up with a name that essentially means Jehovah is God. But that'd be awesome. And so when he was, when he was battling with those priests of Baal, um, it was Jehovah is God battling 300 plus um, priests who lost against that. But have a think about for a moment, you know, when children are named and we're going to have a we're going to see a, a new child named soon, which is a lovely thing. They normally take on the name of their family or their parents. And so that's something we have to look forward to because the new name we're going to be given is going to be related to the God whom we've been adopted into his family. So I'm looking forward to that. It's a beautiful thought in the future. God will give each of us a white stone and in that stone is going to be a name that only we know that God's going to give to us specifically and it's going to mean something and, me, and, and it's going to, it will mean something very precious to us. So Israel has been named by God and it represents a new identity that he has now with God and a privilege that he had obtained by God. And if you think about that, that just that thought that God manifested himself and we call this a pre-incarnate, um, version of Christ. Okay, this is before he was born as uh, Jesus in Bethlehem. He manifested himself as a man, which he had done to his grandfather as well. Um, he had he had had lunch with, and he came along with two other angels. And the Bible says that Abraham spoke face to face with God because God had manifested himself as a man to him. Who was that man? Well, that man was the son of God who had manifested himself to him. And now he was doing it again to Jacob. Let's go back to our story. Joseph's brothers had traveled a fair way away to feed their flocks in a place called Shechem or Shechem. Remember, in the initial part of the story, in the first part of this particular chapter, um, Je Jacob had sent Joseph to go and check on his brothers and the Bible says that he came back with an evil report about his brothers. Um, and one of the reasons that Jacob was sending him again was to check on his brothers to make sure that everything was okay because he can trust what Joseph was going to tell him. Joseph would tell him exactly what the story was like, good or bad. And so he wanted to send him to go and check on his brethren because he could trust him to tell him the truth and so verse 12 says and his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem and Israel said unto Joseph do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem come and I will send thee unto them and he said unto him here am I and he said to him go I pray thee see whether it be well with thy brethren and with the flocks and bring me word again so he sent him out of the vale of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Isn't that, that obedience, that level of obedience, something exemplary? 
his father had just asked him to go and check on his brothers and the flock, which wasn't just around the corner. Okay, this was pretty far. And here's Joseph saying, here am I. You know what the here am I means? Yeah, I'll do whatever you want. I'm here for you. That's a lovely phrase. Here am I. If we would only respond that quickly when God asks us to do stuff. You know, when the Lord, when the Lord comes to us and commands us to go to do this or to do that, if we would only simply answer, here am I. Whatever you want, I'll do it. It'd be wonderful if we could reply that quickly and with such certainty as he did when the Lord asked something of us, when he calls us to obey, when he calls us to be faithful in our service to him, when he calls us to be faithful in worship, in prayer, in love, in avoiding sin. If he said, keep away from that sin, are we that quick to say, here am I, okay? If each time he called on us, we would simply say, here am I, we wouldn't face most of the problems that we face in life. Joseph's brothers were not tending sheep around the corner, as I said, or just over the hill. No, it seems as if the grazing, grazing pasture around Hebron was pretty scarce, and so they had to go further up north in order to feed their flocks. You're not talk, we're not talking 20 sheep here. We're not talking a few hundred. We're possibly talking thousands of sheep. And so they need a large area to graze in and to feed. And Shechem wasn't like a kilometre down the road. Shechem was over 70 kilometres away. 70 kilometres. And so the brothers aren't just there, you know, for an afternoon and coming back. They're there for a while because it took at least two to three days to get there. And so Jacob was well aware of how far he was sending Joseph to go and check on how the brothers were. And it was a genuine check. Go and check on how they're going. They would have been there for days away. Which makes Joseph's answer even more wonderful. Here am I. I'll go. So when he accepted his father's request, he did it knowing that the journey would be far. And he'd be doing it by himself, at least a two or three day walk. So without delay, Joseph sent him out to Shechem to go and check on the brothers and the, and the, the flocks. So in verse 15, it says something interesting. It says, and a certain man found him. And behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Uh, tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, they are departed hence. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. Now, a nameless man just pops up out of the blue. So he's arrived to Shechem. He's looking around. Probably got, went up on top of the highest hill. Had a look around. Doesn't see any flocks around. He's wondering, where are these guys gone? I can't see them anywhere here. And this man just pops up out of the blue and says, found him. And he says, well, what are you doing here? What are you looking for? And he says, I'm looking for my brothers. Have you seen them? They, they would have been pretty noticeable. And because he had heard their conversation, it must have passed by or, or maybe even gotten a conversation with himself, he was able to give directions to Joseph as to where they had gone. And this is another wonderful story for us. You know, Joseph didn't know this guy. This guy didn't own him anything. He didn't know him from a bar of soap. 
But here he is at the right place, the right time to go and say, your brothers are down that direction. And I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but God can use anyone to lead you in the direction he wants you to go. He can use a donkey if he wants to get you to do something or not do something. And God used this man who remains nameless, who probably didn't even believe in the same God that they did, but it was nice enough to say, oh, I heard about your brothers. Now they're going down that way. He didn't have any malintent, didn't have you know, any malice toward, uh, toward Joseph. He just told him the truth of what he had seen and what he had heard. And God gave him that direction. And God can use random people in our lives to help us get to where he wants us to go. God's the ultimate planner. God planned that when Joseph arrived in Shechem and his brother's already gone, that this fellow was already there with the information that he needed and he was ready to go and he was ready to tell him. Now, I, I look at our relationship with the school here and how they've allowed us to have this building um, without having to pack it up and, and, and set it up every week. Uh, there aren't many places that are like this. I'm not saying that we're anything's anything special at all. What I'm saying is God can do amazing things. He can turn, he can soften the hearts of a school council or a school board to say that if a fundamental Baptist church can be meeting at the front of the school on a permanent basis and be planted here and for them to say, we see you as a benefit to the school. God can take even our enemies and cause them to bless us. So remember that God is the ultimate planner. If God wants you to be in a certain place at a certain time, if he wants you to go in a certain direction, all you have to say is, here am I. I'll start going. And he, he organizes all the details behind the scenes. Now you might say, because you, you and I know what's going to happen next, you might say to yourself, it would have been better if he didn't tell him. Probably wouldn't be better if he didn't find out where his brothers were because he could have simply said, all right, can't find them. I'm going to go home now. For Joseph's sake and for the suffering that he was about to go through and endure, it would have been better if he never met this man in the first place. But then we would have just, wouldn't have had the story in our Bibles, would we? We wouldn't have discovered the amazing way that God worked through Joseph. And how God revealed his own nature and his own love for his people through him. No, Joseph had a destiny. A destiny and a predetermined destiny that God had arranged. And that unnamed man, which we don't know, was part of it. But once again, we see the faithfulness of Joseph. Did you notice? He's just traveled 70, more than 70 kilometers. I think it's about 75 kilometers. Now, after you've gone 75 kilometers to go and find your brothers and they're not there, tell me what the first thing come, would come into your mind would be. If the guy then goes and tells you, oh, they're another 35 kilometers on the road. Tell me. You talk, you've spoken to someone. No one knows. We don't, no one knows his name. And you've just come all that way. Your brothers have gone another 35 kilometers away. 
I'm telling you the temptation would have been for every one of us to say, forget this, I'm going home. But Joseph, this is what makes Joseph so different. This is what makes him such an example to us. He doesn't make the excuse. The agreement that he had with his father was dad. And his dad said, I want you to go and check on your brothers. And I want to check on the flocks. And he's gone all this way. They're not there. And now he said, I'm willing to go another 35 kilometers. You know what? I'm going to get sore feet. I'm going to be further away from home than, I, than who knows if I've ever been that far. He says he's going to do it. But I'll tell you this, the majority of people, if they were in Joseph's shoes, wouldn't have done that. They would have found the excuse to go back home and said, forget about these guys. They don't even like me. What difference does it make whether I'm there or not? I'm telling you that most of us would have come up with an excuse to go back home. No one would have known the difference because he could have hid it because no one would have known. The nameless man wouldn't have gone telling anyone. He could have simply gone back home and said, Dad, they weren't there when I got there. So let me ask all of us this question. How faithful is our obedience when it comes to the Lord? What limits do we place on ourselves in our faithfulness to him? You know, when we get to the point where we've traveled a certain way and then we find, oh, I've got a sore foot. You know, it's, serving God is, can be a hard thing, you know? And it wasn't what I expected. I thought I don't have to travel this far, but now I've got to go more. Well, someone else is making my life more complicated now that I've, I've traveled this particular road. You know what? What's a temptation for us to say, forget this, I'm just going to go back? What limits do we place on our obedience to God? Think carefully about this question. Because I have absolutely no doubt that your flesh will want you not to think about this. Because it doesn't bode well for us normally. Because when we consider the way we obey God and the way we are faithful to him, I have no doubt that the flesh will try it in every case, find the shortcut. No one else knows about it. I'll make this excuse. No one else knows about it. You know, I was tired on that day. Or I was just too far for me. Or it was just too hard for me. Or that person spoke so nasty to me. I couldn't keep on going in that direction. We can hide a lot of things. We can take a lot of shortcuts, which no one will ever know about. But he will. And he does. You see, he sees it all. There's nothing that we can do that fools him. We can even try and fool ourselves and convince ourselves that we are doing an awesome job of obeying him, of being faithful to him. Look, God, what I've done for you. I go to church on a Sunday morning. Look how wonderful I am, how faithful I am. But God's no fool. God sees everything. Yeah, sure, Jacob was at home, 70 kilometers away. Jacob would not have been any wiser if Joseph had gone back home and said, Dad, couldn't find them. 
But the Father we have is with us constantly. He's with us always. He sees all things. He sees us more clearly than we look at it when we look at ourselves in the mirror at home. He sees us in more detail than that. When we are tempted to take shortcuts or to offer excuses for our lack of obedience, it would be well for us to remind ourselves that one day we will stand before the one we call Lord. That word Lord means master. It means the one we bow ourselves down to. It's the one we call our king. And one day we will have to give an account to him. Yes, even believers will, give you, will have to give an account. You will give an account. And you will not be thrown into hell because Jesus paid for all your sins, but you will give an account and I will give an account for the time that we spent here. Because every moment we have is a gift now to us. And the question is going to be when we stand before our Saviour and he's thrown one day, what we're going to say? Oh God, but it was a bit too far. You know, I had other things to do on that day. Um, you know what? Oh, I just, I'm just too busy. I was so busy. I was so consumed with things that were so important. God, you know that, that, that you know, I was having trouble with those people. So I, couldn't, I can't spend any time with them. It was too hard for me, Lord. But I'm telling you, one day, don't you want to hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Is that your desire this morning? Do you want to hear the words, thou hast been faithful over a few things? I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. If we can't be faithful in even the small things, why would we kid ourselves that God's going to give us the big ones? The choice is ours to make, and in the end, we will inherit what we've sown. God is no fool. So let's consider the obedience and faithfulness of Joseph as he is now embarked on another 35 kilometer journey on foot. And so he travels then after this message from this fellow, the stranger in Shechem. And verse 18 says, and he's arriving to see his brothers. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. As that for a family? And they said one to another, Behold, the dreamer, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. Imagine that. They'd given their brother a nickname already, the dreamer. Because Joseph telling his dreams had made them so bitter and hateful and their flesh rose up as soon as they saw that multicoloured coat in the distance. And look at the stark contrast between them and Joseph. Where Joseph 
could have left off from seeking his brothers and said, can't find you. You want to Shechem? I'm going to go home. No, no, no. His brothers first considered the remoteness of how far their father was. This is how, this is how their mind actually worked, right? This is how sin actually works. The first thing they thought, oh, there's Joseph. There he is. Dad's not around. How about we kill him and we throw him into a, a pit somewhere? What were they thinking? Were they thinking of their father? No. They were thinking just for themselves and thinking how they could take advantage of the remoteness of their father. The complete opposite in character. So they plotted to kill him. While they were plotting to kill him, he was coming toward them with open arms. But isn't this how sin creeps in? Jesus says that if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Because the human heart is devious and deceptive. Hating someone as Joseph's brothers hated him is only separated from murder by occasion. And because of the consequences of getting caught. But what if you believed there weren't any consequences to your sin? You see, they harboured hatred towards him, but hadn't planned until this moment to kill him. Maybe, that, maybe it did run through their minds, but they didn't conspire together to do that. But now, there was a possibility of not suffering any consequences. And so when you think well, there's no consequences to pay here, and I can do what I want. Out comes the manifestation of the hatred, which is murder. What if you believed that there were no consequences for your actions? Think about that for a moment. If you could walk these streets and do whatever you wanted, and there'd be no consequences to it. What would your life be like? What would you do that you haven't done already? What if the enemy that you had, you could make them disappear and no one would ever know that it was you? Just make them disappear. Would most people take that? Would many people take that? I'm telling you, there are many people buried in pits all around the place because people thought that very thought. There are plenty of people who have been drowned in oceans and, and dumped into rivers with weights and thrown into pits in the middle of forests because they thought that very thing. How many bodies throughout the ages have been thrown into places to hide. People hate one another all the time. Actually, this world is filled with hate. I see it everywhere. And unfortunately, I see it even creeping into the church sometimes. The hatred and the bitterness that I see people speak about other people with. 
You harbour bitterness and you're only held back by the consequences of doing that very thing. Jesus, Jesus says that don't think that that thing isn't seen already. How many people would wish their, their enemies dead? How many men hold lust in their hearts for a woman? How many lies are told and truth twisted or withheld because people wouldn't find out the difference? Because you can hide a bit here and you can hide a little bit there and no one's ever going to know the difference. How many evil thoughts run through people's minds without a care in this world? Because people foolishly believe that there are no consequences to pay. Because that space in here and this space in here, no one knows what's going on. That's sealed shut. No one can see in there. But I'm telling you this morning, there is someone who sees in there. Someone who sees very clearly. Hebrews 4.13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, and we have to do. Whether you're his child or whether you're not. Neither our hearts nor our minds are concealed from him, with whom we have to do. And that laying bare, that laying open, completely exposed and naked in front of him, like two children that were playing around in that Garden of Eden, completely naked, unaware of that they were even naked at all. God sees everything, nothing hidden from him. That being laid bare doesn't happen after. It's happening now. It's present now. There is a person, there is a being who can see into your soul clearer than you can see yourself. And he sees all the darkness, the corruption, the, the folly that we, and the excuses that we provide, thinking that we're fooling ourselves and somehow by fooling ourselves we fool him as well. Oh, if I really believe it, then he's going to have to believe it as well. Really? You think that? Do you think that if you convince yourself of something, that you've convinced him as well? Whatever a person may think about their sin, the Bible clearly says these words, God is not mocked. He is no fool. He sees it all. And he can't be taken for a fool either. So it's better to repent of your sin and, and throw yourself at the mercy and the grace of God that leads you to forgiveness than to pretend that he doesn't somehow see you and carry this, this ball and chain around with you, pretending that it's not there. The brothers who conspired together, who got together when they saw their little brother coming up and, 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 uh, and approaching them may have been whispering together the hatred that was coming out of their hearts and the murderous intent that they now had 
to their brothers, but I'll tell you, there was someone in the middle of them who heard every word that they said, who paid attention and knew what was going on. And so we have one of these brothers who can't take it. Oh yeah, I'm one of the boys. I'm one. I'm one of the. You know, I'm one of the. You know, the the, the eleven or the, the ten brothers here. I, you know, I've been here. I've been through. I, I've grown up with these guys. These are my brothers. But Reuben's heart hasn't reached that depth that they've reached just yet. Reuben's struggling with this whole conversation that's going on, and he suggests another plan. Let's do something else. And so in verse 21, it says, And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, that it is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he, that he might rid him out of their hands. See, he's trying to rescue them from their hands, to deliver him to his father again. So Reuben's idea was they wanted to kill him and throw him into a pit to cover the evidence. Reuben said, don't kill him. Let's not kill him. It's not right for, for brothers to kill another brother. Let's just throw him in the pit. And his idea was that when they weren't around, he'd go and fish him back out again and bring him back to dad. And so verse 23 says, And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colours that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. In other words, the idea was it wasn't filled with water, it was an empty pit, and he could have survived in there. Well, he lived for a, could have lived for a while. And the first thing they did when they got their hands on him was to strip him of that coat. Why would you strip him of that coat? What for? Like, why would you do that? Why would you rip off that coat? Because that coat was the very thing that they hated. It was representative of the father's love for him. And they were jealous and bitter about that. They were envious of what he had with his father. And so the first thing they did was get rid of this symbol that is always in my face. The very thing that stirred up the hatred in the first place. What an interesting picture of human fallen human nature. While his brothers hated him because of his coat that represented his father's love for him, it was a symbol of hate for them. And I'll tell you something. If you share your faith with people out there, if you tell them how much your heavenly father loves you and how much you love him, and you wear your works and your life on the outside of your life so they can see what you're doing, I'll tell you that there will be many who will hate you for that. They will hate you. They will hate what you have or what you think, what they think you think you have. Have you ever told someone that you know you're going to heaven? But then when you share the gospel with them, you're telling them they're going to hell, Right? And the first thing that comes to their mind is this person thinks they're better than me. Or this person somehow thinks that God loves them more than he loves me. Have you ever chosen not to partake in bad jokes or coarse jokes at your workplace? 
when everyone else is laughing along with the whole thing in that group and you don't and you walk away, what they think of you? Have you ever been in a place where your, your friends or family are drinking to excess and you say, I'm not drinking at all? What they think of you? What about when you're at a party on a Saturday night and you say, I have to leave early because I have to worship God tomorrow morning. I have to be at church tomorrow morning. Will they not look at you with some sort of a weird look? Saying, what are you talking about? We're having such a great time here. Why would you put going to church on a Sunday morning above us? When we behave in ways that distinguish us, that show our love for God on the outside, like a code of plenty of colours, when you become visible to the people out there, there will be those who hate you. And one thing which is really interesting is that sometimes it comes from even your own family. Expect it. There will be those who admire it, who are actually drawn to that. But there are some who will absolutely hate it and they will feel very uncomfortable because it shines a light on them. And they think that, that you have something that they either want, don't have, or they wish you were dead because you're reminding them of something that they don't have. And they will want you stripped of that coat. They want you out of it. So when you're faithfully serving God, let's say you're in your workplace on a, and lunchtime comes around and you're sitting at, at, your, at your table at your workplace, and you pray over your food. Or they don't hear you swearing. Or they don't see you being involved in the things they get involved with. Or you, they see you putting God first. You're going to look different. And the first thing that they're probably going to come to mind for many of them is they want you stripped out of that coat. Because it makes them uncomfortable. I don't want to be reminded by this person all the time that I don't believe in God, that I don't go to church, that I don't do the right thing, that I get drunk, that I lie, I swear, I tell bad jokes, I do this, that and the other. I'm in an adulterous relationship or anything. Like that. I, don't want to be, I don't want to be told about these things. Why is this person always in front of me? And the first thing I try and do is get you out of that coat. They'll want you to take the coat off to look like them. Does that make sense? And if they can't take you out of the coat, they'll try to rip the coat off you. The Bible tells us to stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness. Where is that? The back? That's at the front. It's something that stands out in the front. And so that's what we've been called to how we've been called to live our lives. Joseph wore his coat proudly. It reminded him of his father's love. It was reflective of the relationship he had with the father. So please keep your coat on and walk about with it loudly and proudly. Philippians 1.11 says, Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. That's what our lives are meant to reflect, the glory of God and all those works that we do, and not even our own. We are simply meant to say, 
here am I. God says, I've got a work prepared for you over here. Start walking. Our response should simply be, here am I. And you start putting one foot in front of the other. So let's return to our story. And it seems that Judah's also got ideas that might try and save Joseph as well from dying in that pit. So Judah tried to, tried to come up with another idea because they thought, well, we can't just leave the guy in the pit. He's going to die slowly here. And so Genesis 37, 25 says, And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and, beho- and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profiteth us if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. So Judah said, all right, no, no, let's can't leave him down there. We can't, we don't want to kill him. I don't want to, we don't think it's right to kill him. So let's sell him to those guys. At least he won't die in the pit. We're not going to kill him. They'll take him away from us. Huh? Let's just give him to someone else and they'll deal with him. We want him away as far as possible. If they, where are they going to carry him? All the way to Egypt. Let's, let's send him all the way to Egypt as far as we can send him. As a slave, he's never going to come home. Because once he's sold into slavery, he's owned by someone in Egypt. So he's stuck there forever. They thought, eh, that, that's a good way to get rid of our problem. And Judah thought, oh, maybe that's, maybe to appease his conscience a bit. Yeah, maybe, you know, he won't have to die. He can be sold into slavery. That'll, that makes you feel better, doesn't it? To sell your brother into slavery rather than killing him. If you're wondering who the Ishmaelites are, they're related. They're Rollos, sort of. Same father. Except Abraham had Ishmael as a son with Hagar, to Sarah's servant. She was Egyptian. So the Ishmaelites are sort of half-brothers. Many people say that they're either associated with Midianites or that the Arabs, many Arabs believe they're descended from Ishmael. That's why a lot of Arabs call their sons Ismail or Is- Ismail or Ishmael. As I think even Muhammad believed he was descended from Ishmael. So verse 28 then says, Then there passed by Midianites merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes, and he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, where the shall I go? So they went to, to, to take him out of the pit so they could sell him to the, to the Ishmaelites. That's a great plan. But guess who got there first? The Midianites got there first. This is this guy in this pit. We can make some money here. Quick, pull him out. There's 20 pieces of silver for this guy. Send him across the Ishmaelites. Same result. But the problem was that the family didn't get to him first. Where's he gone now? And Reuben, who probably had the, the most tender heart towards the most tender heart towards his brother, freaked it. What do we do now? Look, why? The, I'm the oldest. This is going to come on me. Like, what do I do? How do I tell dad? How do I approach him? How do I cover this thing up? 
We've lost our brother. And he grieved bitterly for him. Where, where shall I go? Where am I going to run? I can't, I can't, I've got nowhere to go. And so, once again, their flesh came up. You see, they had to now cover up this thing. And so, once again, the flesh conspired. They conspired together and they had to come up with a new story. Because what do you tell dad about this? And so, in verse 31, and they took Joseph's coat that they'd stripped from him and killed the kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colours and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It's my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. So Jacob's now holding his son's coat, filled with blood. And he immediately recognised it. And he realised what it meant. My son, my beloved son is dead. And he had no clue that his own brothers had caused this or had even made up the story. The things people will do to cover up their sin. Obviously their father's heart was less precious to them than their own cover-up. So it says in verse 34, And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into my grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. How father's heart is broken for his son. The loss of a loved one can be a terrible thing. Now, even as believers, we have this calm assurance, this blessed peace, this hope that we will see our loved ones again. But it doesn't mean that we won't miss them. It doesn't mean that we can't mourn for them. Now, I'm reminded of the time when the Apostle Paul called the pastors of Ephesus to himself and he said to them, I'm going to go now after these years of being with you and you're probably not going to see my face again. He wasn't, they, they thought he might have died before he saw them again, but they simply knew they probably were never going to see his face again. And Acts 20 verse 37 says, And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompany him, accompanied him unto the ship. Imagine the pain that Jacob went through. Imagine the heartache of having to say goodbye to the son that you love. 
when it could have all been avoided. But imagine the heartache of a father who watches his only precious son, the Prince of Heaven, beaten, whipped, humiliated, nailed to a cross, with a crown of thorns on his head. Imagine watching your own son covered with blood. And you were the one that sent him there. So that he might rescue people like us. That he might rescue us and save us from our sins and call us his own children. Let that inspire you this morning. Think about how much love God showed you and me. Let that, let his heart break at that point when his own son actually turned to his father and said, why have you abandoned me? Remember how much love he has for you. That love has not faded. It hasn't gone away. It's deepened for you now that you are his child. You are as precious to God the Father as Joseph was to Jacob. Remember, you are a child of the King this morning and he will do everything. He will move heaven and earth for you. Live like it. And remember that love is the thing that motivates us to live. It's his love for us that changed us, not our love for him. It's never our love for him. It's always his love for us. And the more we understand that, the more we receive that, the more it will change our lives. And so next week, we'll look at Joseph being sold into Egypt to, to Potiphar, an officer in Pharaoh's house and the captain of the guard. But before that, please consider your position before God this morning. If you are his child, then live your life with your works for him. Let your love for him shine on the outside of your life. Don't hide who you are. Because the time is very short. And if you don't know him this morning, then I, there's not much I can say for you. If you have Christ, you have no, if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. You have no future to look forward to. You will have to pay for your own sin. You will have to give an account of yourself and it will not be pretty. You will stand before God, not as your father, but as your judge. And you will pay for every sin that you have ever committed. And you'll be separated from everyone you have ever loved. And they'll be separated from you. And you'll be in a place of torment for the rest of eternity with no reprieve. Please, today, if you don't know Christ, make today the day you receive him as your Lord and Saviour, to have all of your sins forgiven and for him to save you from the penalty of your sin and the power of it. God bless you.